Welcome to the Kids First Podcast, where every week we talk with thought leaders, educators, school leaders, and advocates of school choice and charter schools in South Carolina and across the nation. Today we have a very special guest with us. Alan Wilson is the 51st Attorney General of the state of South Carolina. He's also a former state judge advocate in the South Carolina National Guard, and he's currently the special assistant to the General Counsel for the National Guard Bureau. Alan has two children, Michael and Anna Grace, and he's from West Columbia, South Carolina. Alan, welcome to the Kids First Podcast. It's great to be with you, buddy. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you know, you and I have known each other a long time, and we were chatting before we came on the podcast about your son, Michael, getting his Eagle Scout Award. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. I'm so elated as a dad. I'm an Eagle Scout. My three brothers are Eagle Scouts. Now I have a son who's an Eagle Scout. And unlike his dad, he got it when he was 14 years old, right before he turned 15. I got mine like 17 years, yeah. 11 months, you know. Right up until my, the deadline. Right up until the deadline. So I told my son, get it early so you can wear that patch and, and be active as an Eagle Scout in the troop. And he's doing that. Yeah, that's something you and I have in common. I'm an Eagle Scout as well. And, in fact, that was really what connected me with your family for the first time. I had received an award at my church for scouting, and your dad, then State Senator Joe Wilson, came to my church in West Columbia and presented me with an award, and I was 17, and I just think the world of your family, I mean, I can't think of another family in South Carolina that has done more to give back, both statewide and locally, than your family. The Wilsons are a great South Carolina family. Well, you know, and I appreciate you saying that. You know, I remember being a kid. And we'd be driving somewhere, and we'd go into an event. It could be a parade. It could be a rotary club, wherever. Some random person would walk up to Dad and say, hey, I really appreciate you doing X or whatever they did. And people would walk up to me on the street and say, hey, your dad helped me with this adoption, or your yep. dad helped me with this you know, road paving. Your dad helped me get, get a passport. Or your dad, And I'm like, I grew up hearing that, and I'm like, when I grow up, I want to do that. No, I yeah. want to help people. You know, because that's all I ever heard is how dad helped people as a kid. So that's that's what kind of led me into public service. Yeah, and so, you know, obviously you've had a just a stellar political career, and you've done just a fabulous job as the Attorney General of the state of South Carolina. If I recall, you got elected back in 2010, mm-hmm. and you've been reelected. I think you get the highest vote margin every time you're on the ballot. I haven't looked, but I, I when I was elected in 2010, I was the youngest Attorney General in the country. I was 37. And and as of this January, when I assumed my fourth term, uh, I became the current longest-serving attorney general in the country. So I'm now the dean of AGs. Yeah, I love country. it. So, yeah. I love it. And I'm still under I'm still under fifty. I'm only forty nine, and I'm, I think I'm like the fourth or fifth youngest out of fifty four AG or fifty six AGs. So still toward the top of the youngs. Well, you've set a great pace, and the other thing that you and I share, and I just like to make these connections with our guest, is you know service to our country and. You had valorous service in Iraq, recipient of the Bronze Star Combat Action. I got a I mean, combat action badge. A combat action badge, yeah. okay. But, I mean, the service to our country and, and all, over all these years speaks volumes again about your commitment to our state mm-hmm. nation. I appreciate that, Alan. Well, I, pre- I appreciate you saying that. And, again, you know, you're, not, you're selling yourself short right now because we, we serve together and see you in uniform all the time. So thank you for your service as well. I appreciate it. I was inspired by my father as well. Now, talk a little bit about your educational experience. So, you know, you and I both are big believers in school choice, educational freedom for our kids, and and that parents should be empowered. But speak a little bit about your own school choice experience growing up, because 
you know, for you, it's always been about school choice. Well, I mean, listen, our family, I was the direct benefit, beneficiary of parents who had the means to choose public education over private school education. When I was growing up, I, I don't know, I was never diagnosed with a learning disability, but I was probably one of those kids who was, had hyperactive yeah, same. disorders, like yeah. ADHD, yeah, ADD. Yeah, I'm and, self-identified. And, and yeah, I, self, I self-actualized that yeah. when I was back in the 80s, before Ridlin was, you know, being you know, given out like Tic Tacs. <laughs> well, we were hyperactive, <laughs> and we talked a lot. And I'd be, you know, the teacher would be, you know, the teacher would be, uh, t- you know, talking you know, about whatever book we were supposed to read, and I would look out the window and see a butterfly, and be like, oh, that's a yeah. red butterfly. Oh, I have a red <laughs> sweater at home. I wonder where that sweater is. You know, I just go off in this yeah. rabbit hole yeah. and just couldn't focus. Um, so anyway... I suffered because because of just not being able to focus and not having that discipline to really deal with it. And because we didn't get it diagnosed and treated, you know, my grades suffered. So my parents actually took me out of public school and put me in a private Christian school uh, in our hometown. I went to Grace Christian where I could have smaller class sizes, more focused attention. My brothers remained in public school, and they yeah. all graduated from the public school system. So y'all were a, a blend. We were a blended family. And, yeah. You know, so I went, and I graduated from private school, and then went, you know, obviously went to the four-year university here in You South went to Francis Marion, right? Francis Marion, then University of South Carolina School, school of Law. And, you know, again, I was, I was not a stellar student. I was kind of a mediocre student at best because, you know, growing up, it wasn't a priority for me. But as I got older... And as I think I grew out of that hyperactive mentality of approaching education and more focused mentality, you know, I saw if you look at the bell curve, if you look at the curve, my, my GPA shot up, you know, you know, I was I did very well in law school and you know, I was I was lucky. Had I come from a family where I didn't have parents that had the ability to provide me that alternative form of education, or I didn't have parents who were putting that proverbial boot to my backside like my parents did, I could have just as easily been like so many kids who fall through the cracks because they don't have parents either care or parents who are able to give them the education that they need. That's exactly right. And I think what we saw, Alan, during COVID was a lot of parents saw what was going on or not going on when their kids were were at home virtually and said, enough is enough. Let's go back and let's think about what we all saw in the news. And of course, you know, I was here at the district and I saw it firsthand. We kept our schools open. But a lot of our schools around the state and nation closed down, and we saw parents then start to really rise up. How important is that for parents to feel that they really do have control over their child's education? Well, first off, our children are our most valuable commodity in the world, if you want to call a child a commodity. I mean, it is the most – I tell people all the time, there's nothing more important to me than the well-being and education and care of my children. Um, and so when you have a state that treats children like they belong to the state and the incentive structure in our education system is geared more to the educator or the bureaucrat or we will, the educrat is what we call them, when it's geared more toward them than the child, then I think we've got everything backwards. Now, that's right. I'm not going to – if you're looking for someone that's going to go beat up in public school teachers no, or, or people – and I know you're not – but I tell people all the time, I'm not here to beat up on public schools. I'm not here to beat up on those people. I have a lot of good friends who are public school teachers, public school administrators, principals, superintendents. God bless them for choosing that. But I do think the incentive structure for state public education has over the years evolved into a less efficient, overly bureaucratic uh, process that is wasteful with money and is not as accountable as it should be to the people who matter most the children, and obviously their parents. So I believe in creating an incentive structure and a process that is transparent, open, and accountable. And again, it should be always what is in the best interest of the child. Right. 
And again, I, I do care about teachers, and I do care about principals and, and administrators. I mean, they're people too. We want to take care of them, and we want to make sure they're adequately paid. Who's against that? Two things could be true at once. You can be for school choice, and you can also be for people who have a career in the public education system. They're not mutually exclusive. That's right. I feel like people who are anti-school choice, you run a charter school district. Yeah. Okay. You've never asked for anything to be done to public schools that would hurt them. No. You just want to I want be- them to be more like us. It- have the same freedom and autonomy that we do. But people who are some people who are advocates of public education, it's not that they're advocating um for uh, better public education. They're advocating for constraints on alternative forms of education. They want less access for people to go through a parochial school, a charter school, an independent school, or even a home school. Um, and these are very viable and sometimes better alternatives for some kids than public education. And there are kids who thrive in public schools, and public schools should should be adequately funded and supported for those kids. That's right. That's exactly right. Just give people choice. Right. Whether it's public, private, charter. We've got micro schools now that are starting to grow around the country. The homeschool community is very important and growing here in in the nation. But giving parents that choice. So on that choice message, you know, and and some people call it educational freedom, which is kind of the new buzzword in, in this movement. How important is it for parents to have visibility on curriculum? Because one of the unique features about charter schools in South Carolina is that our local school makes decisions with parents on the curriculum that our our students are going to use in the classroom to learn from, whereas our traditional friends don't have that same opportunity. How important is it for parents to have transparency when it comes to curriculum? Oh, it's absolutely vital that parents have access and input into the type of curriculum that's being used to educate their children. I mean, I don't understand why public schools aren't more transparent in that. I mean, you see a lot of... um, books creeping their way into public school libraries and these books are not the kind of books that you 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 could buy in an adult bookstore and again and and the justification is is you want to open up the minds of these kids to all these alternative lifestyles and these books are are pornographic in nature and um, when I've asked several uh, people in the public school system it's like well we buy them in batches and we're not allowed to go and you know when you buy a batch of books of 100 books they come in a set and you can't excise the bad books I'm like think about that you're part of a process where you can't even tell a vendor to take certain books out. You have to take those books, yeah. and then you have to put them on the shelf. Um, and I, I think that's disgusting. Um, I think transparency and engagement by parents uh, in the selection of the curriculum and, and the types of books that kids have access in the public, li- public school libraries is vital. You know, you've spent your career in law. And you don't get a, a lot of opportunity to talk about these kind of issues. Talk about your philosophy when it comes to education. Well, I think I hit on it a second ago, Chris, but I believe, I believe in an all-of-the-above approach. I believe that um, families should have access to whatever type of educational resources that best suit their child's needs. If that educational resource is a pathway through the charter school district, we need to make sure we have a robust and vibrant charter school district where you know, there's more transparency, there's more accountability, a little bit more autonomy from the public schools. And if, if, a, if a child needs to learn in a parochial environment, maybe a, a faith-based yeah. school um, that fits the faith of the family, 
then that is the way to go. And if a child learns better at home, we need to create a vehicle for home schools to get the same type of attention that public and charter schools and other schools are getting. So I'm an all-of-the-above guy. I'm not anti-public school or public education. There are people out there who would say, if you even want to send dollars to another alternative, that means every dollar that you send to a a charter school or to any other type of school through school choice programs is at one less dollar that uh, we can spend in public schools. Here's the thing. You and I were talking off, off mic a few minutes ago. I don't want to misquote you, but the average amount of money it takes to educate one child in a public school every year is, what, $14,000, give or take? On average, you'll see that a traditional school district will get about fourteen, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000 per child, whereas we're only about nine. $9,500. So, so we get no local dollars. But yeah, you, you don't have the local tax base supporting you. That's right. State and federal, they get three levels of government taxation supporting yeah. them. Um, and they, it costs them roughly, roughly fourteen dollars and $15,000 a year to educate a child. It, it costs you roughly $9,500 a year. That's a difference. Almost of, half. Yeah. Yeah. yeah $5,000 difference per And kid. it varies per district. Some districts spend over twenty grand. Per child. Well, we're talking averages. Yeah. But my point is, is that when people say every dollar you take away from public, well, here's the thing. If you can take a, a dollar in a charter school district and you can stretch it 10 feet, you know, and I'm, I'm using that as a metric. Yeah. And a public school can take a dollar in the public education system and only stretch it five feet, right? You're getting twice as much out of that dollar as a public We're a great is. value to the state of South Carolina. Absolutely. And the results are in the pudding. So if you look at the state report card that came out in the fall from the Department of Education, charter schools in South Carolina on on the EOCs, our end-of-course exams, that's algebra, English, math. You look at math and science, we're outpacing the statewide average on all of those metrics, and yet we're spending almost half as much. Well, the thing is the school districts have become so overly bureaucratized the number of administrators that get hired, and a lot of these administrators are duplicative. A lot of them um, don't really advance the education of the child. They're part. They're, they're there to serve the bureaucracy more than the child, um, and some of them are not even necessary. That is why the public education system at times is not as efficient because you guys have to be lean and mean, and they don't have to be. It's When you're spending someone else's money, you don't really think about right. where it comes from or how you're going to get more of it when you expect it to be there every year. But when you have to really think and budget, you, you, you can stretch a dollar and make a dollar go much, much further than other, other groups like public schools. So I would like to see the public school system reformed. I, I, you and I were talking earlier, I think, you know, to be, to be more like you all. I want public schools to be vibrant. I want them to be robust. I want them to be adequately funded. I want to pay good salaries to good teachers. I don't want a system that rewards bad teachers and bad administrators and makes it difficult to excise them. See, we pay based on merit. So, see, right. here's the great thing. You know, we talk about this autonomy that we have at right. the local school level. So, you know, our schools don't have to pay on the, on the salary schedule of the state. We can pay teachers based on merit and performance right there in the local school. So we can pay more than what's on the state salary schedule, which is a great incentive. And by the way, we don't have the attrition problems with teachers the way some of our traditional friends do. And we don't even offer state retirement because most of our schools can't afford it. I mean, we're penny pinchers. We don't have buses. If we get, if we need a bus, we go out and raise money in the local community. We don't get money for facilities. We can't issue bonds. But guess what we do? 
We go and we renovate a Walmart or a grocery store. See, that's the great value in all this. Well, and, and a couple Put of the years, money in the child and in the learning. Couldn't agree with you more. A couple of years ago, I had the ability to go and visit meeting the Meeting Street Schools in North Charleston. That, that Ben Navarro, you oh, yeah. with him. and he's We're partnered with them. We're going to open a school this fall in, in Jasper County. Well, this is probably about five years ago, but I visited a uh, the Meeting Street School in North Charleston, and my understanding was that this is a school they had taken over. They basically took into receivership an elementary school that it was just gone belly up, and it was it was in a in a poor community, majority minority students, obviously the majority black community. And at first, there was a lot of uh, resistance to them coming in, but they said within within a year or two, the community had embraced them because this school was pull, pulling kids from the same neighborhoods. That other kids, like in other words, you got kids living next door to each other. One's going to the public school six blocks away, and one's going to this school three blocks away. Yeah. So, and and the outcomes were drastically different. They were having they were scoring much higher off the charts in in this school than the public school was, literally right up the street. And I asked the question, what what do you to what do you attribute our your success to? And they say we have complete control over the type of curriculum that's being treated. We have at will teachers. And we all, and the student ratios, uh, the t- student teacher ratios. I think they have a primary alternate teacher in a class of like twenty to twenty four. So you have one to twelve. That's uh, right. You know, and, and so it's a much smaller class environment with much more localized training. They can hire and fire teachers at will, and they can control the curriculum. And when I talk to the teachers, the teachers are happier. Yeah, I mean, they, they love it. And so there are a lot of people in public education that they don't like that the the idea that a teacher can lose her job if they're not performing simply because they've been there a long time. Um, the idea that parents can have access to the type of curriculum and that there's autonomy in choosing the curriculum you want, not being force-fed curriculum. I mean, these are things, I don't know why people are so resistant to this. Well, another unique feature, and, and what you describe with Meeting Street is very similar to the majority of our charter schools mm-hmm. in South Carolina. And that's why we've partnered with Meeting Street to open that new school down in Jasper County, which, by the way, when you look at Jasper County, you know, some of the lowest test scores in the entire state of South Carolina. And those kids have no mm-hmm. opportunity. They can't afford to go to a private school. Public charter schools is the is the best way to give them the alternative educational experience they need. Alan, you'll remember when President Obama was running for office back in 2008, and he came to South Carolina on a, a rare trip, and he came to a part of the state, sadly, which has been referred to as the corridor of shame. Yeah. I like to call it the corridor of opportunity or hope. And he went and visited some of those schools that were literally falling apart. But, of course, that was 2008. Nothing's happened since then. We want to change that narrative in South Carolina, but we want to do it through public school choice. And we really want to do more in rural South Carolina. You're paying attention to what's going on in our state, the big job announcements. We've got the Scout Motors coming to North Richland County. We've got the big industrial site coming in in Collington County. Our state's leading the nation when it comes to jobs and the automotive industry. How important is it for us to go into these rural communities in South Carolina, which have no jobs, no opportunity, but rebuild the workforce and train the next generation of workers so South Carolina can continue to participate and be competitive in this new global economy that we're in? I look at these rural impoverished areas as like gold mines that haven't been discovered yet. It's unrefined natural resources that we don't know about is there. And if we go digging, we could find a diamond in the rough. We can tap those, uh, we can get to those untapped uh, resources, uh, that untapped potential in so many kids. 
um, you know, by tapping into them and giving them a roadmap to a, a brighter future through through a course of education that they otherwise don't have access to. So I believe that when co- when companies and businesses and industries are looking to go to a state, they're looking at a number of things. Obviously, they're looking at looking at infrastructure. They're looking at the tax policies of of the state. They're they're looking at the litigation or the judicial climate of the state. You know, are they going to get sued from here to kingdom come? They're looking yeah. at employment workforce. They're looking at education, which is tied to employment workforce. Is there a pipeline of adequately trained people uh, to that can feed the workforce that we're, we're going to be providing? And so uh, is this a business-friendly environment? Is it an education-friendly environment? And so that's what they're looking for. And in South Carolina, we have the ability to create opportunities in these areas, these, this untapped potential uh, for these for these young kids who, who don't have act like I said the, I'm, I was blessed and it wasn't blessed because my I mean we were middle class if you're looking at a dollar yeah. amount oh yeah when I say I was a one percenter I'm not saying I was a one percenter because of money or resources I was a one percenter because I had parents who had the ability and the inclination to invest in me when I wasn't prepared to invest in myself at that age of my life and there were so many kids out there that don't have a parent or parents that can do that for them, or have the ability through no fault of the parent. No, and so these kids are lost, and so I think that we have to create an education system that puts the needs of the child above all else. And if we can support the needs of people along the way, like teachers and administrators, etc., that's great. But it's like when you go into the ministry, you don't go in there to make money. I didn't go into politics to make money. Right? Teachers and administrators shouldn't go into politics. Shouldn't go into education because of the benefits they're going to receive. They go into it because of something bigger than themselves: serving a community of kids that that will be the next generation. That will be our leaders. And it is a great calling. It is a great. I mean, I love being in education. If you're in education, I don't care if it's private, public, charter, or, or homeschool. Thank you, thank you for being a teacher of any kind. But I feel like that. At times, government creates incentive structures that don't benefit the child. They benefit the bureaucrat. And I think that if we, need to, we need to flip that around. Well, and that's what we're doing in the charter school world here in, in, in South Carolina and in the country. And, 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 you know, when you look at the growth that we had during COVID, 25% growth during COVID, mm-hmm. you know, these were parents making choices for something better and different for the kids. I made personal choices. My son... The local school district didn't work out for him. Local church school, it didn't work out for him. He now goes to an inner-city charter school just down the street from where we are right now. My oldest son was in a traditional public school. We pulled him out. He's now going to a Catholic school here in town. I mean, but but I had the ability to make those kind of choices and pick where I live. Let's get back to this workforce issue. So you and I grew up in the same time period, and, and the narrative was you had to go to college. You know, to be successful in America and to have the American dream, you've got to go to college. And I just don't believe that. My own brother, he didn't want to go to college. But he has now his own construction company. He does very well. He does what he wants to. But he followed his passion. How important is it for us to change the narrative in America and stop focusing on every kid's got to go to college? Maybe a good trade career. Maybe, quite frankly, the military would be a good place for a lot of young people. I could not agree with you more. You know, when you look at, like, I know a lot of people who are in the tech arena, and the reason, and they don't have college degrees, and they make high six-figure salaries. And when I say, why didn't you go, did you have to go to college? He goes, colleges can't keep up with the evolution of technology. Yeah. Coding is moving so fast. Yeah. You know, technology and innovation is moving so fast. If you go to college, you'll be four years behind people who go straight into the industry. 
Um, and so I thought that was very fascinating when I was told that. But yeah, there are kids out there when they graduate high school and they get a base level of education, they can have a very successful career through the military, through some trade school, or from some special training or certification process that allows them to go into a particular industry. I mean, I know that you know, there are kids out there getting welding certificates and they're starting off making seventy five, eighty thousand dollars a year. Um, what I what I get what I get upset about is people go to college because they feel like they have to, not that they need to. And there are some there are some there are some industries that you need a, a college education. Well, we want our doctors to go to college and your lawyers yeah. to go to law school. Yeah, I mean, and engineers. You know, there's there's a level of training you need, but there are people who go to college because it's a social experiment. It's it's kind of like I I just don't want to go from living with mom and dad to working, so I'm going to go to college right. and I'm going to party for four years. You know, I'm going yeah. to get a, a degree in underwater basket under underwater basket weaving. I always I'm a, I'm a pick on myself. I was a political science major, and so every time same I talk, same so, political science. So you too, Chris, were a <laughs> yeah. professional useless person. Right? Well, that's what my dad told me. He was like, "Son, why won't you major in business or finance?" I said, "Well, I'm interested in politics." Well, and and you know, I joke with political science majors and history majors. Oh, you you're a professional useless person, yeah. right? But and, and I'm joking for people who've got that degree. But in, in political science, for me, you study history, you study government, you study psych- psychology, sociology, um, current events, issues. You uh, study philosophy. You get to read a lot, read a lot, write a lot, oh, yeah. talk a lot. So it's a good basic, you know. And I and I went. I knew I was going to go to postgraduate, you know, from from college. So that wasn't where you know political science doesn't teach you how to be a political scientist. It just no. teaches you how to think about the world. That's right. Would you go get trained somewhere else? But if I weren't going to law school, I wouldn't have needed that degree to do something. So if you're, you know, if you know, if you're a parent out there and you have a child who's who's technologically. Um, skilled or good with their hands going to college may not be what is in their best interest they could have just as successful a career without that diploma on their wall um going into something else bill bill gates does not have a college degree hanging on his wall oh that's Um, a good point and and so you know we, we live in a different world and there was a time where college was a vehicle college education was a vehicle to a better life but i don't think it's the only road to a better life now there are a lot of there are a lot of paths to that to that way of life and and speak to the military piece. I mean, you're, you're a colonel in the in the National Guard and work at National Guard Bureau up in Washington. S- speak to what the military can do for young people because right now the military is having a hard time recruiting this generation of young people, seventeen to twenty four. We've got some young listeners. Share. The military can do a lot for a young person who's graduating from high school. You know, a lot. I tell people, some people in life, they stop to smell the roses. I felt like I rolled around in a few gardens. Uh, <laughs> you know, and, and, and yeah, and I'll have to use that one. I like. That. You know, I, I did roll around in a few gardens. Yeah. But again, I had a I had a family there to kick That's me right. back in the, yep. in the pants. But the military, for a kid graduating high school who isn't mature enough to be in the real world yet, can provide structure. It can create a vehicle for becoming more disciplined, and it can teach you a lot of skills that you can use outside of the military. Another thing that the military can do for you is if you get into the military and you're able to build a short career there, you can then get education, um, your, your education paid for through the, through the military. They offer all kinds of programs for people to go back to college. A lot of enlisted people get a get get their college degree or their two-year associate's degree, and then they use that and and then a few years later, they get their four-year degree, and they, they some even become officers. Others, they go up and become NCOs, non-commissioned officers, and they have very successful careers. And they don't go to college 18 to 
22. They go to college when they're 30 to 34. But they have a whole lifetime of experience, and they can appreciate that education, and they know more about who they are and what they want to do when they're 30, going back to school. An 18-year-old kid, not every 18-year-old knows what they want to do when they're 18. My brother knew he wanted to be a doctor when he was like 16 years old. I didn't know what I wanted to do when I was 18. I didn't know what I wanted to do until I was about 23. Yeah, I, it took me a little while as well, although I, I did want to be an astronaut when I was 15, but then I realized you have to be really good in math and science, <laughs> and, and I was not really good in math and science, So, uh, but I'd still love to go to space. So we're starting to close out. I, I want to speak to two more things. You know, you're our state's top law enforcement officer in the state of South Carolina, and you're a protector of the, the, the law and the brand of the state in that respect. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal this morning that talked about the national scores as it related to our students in high school and how low they are when it comes to U.S. history and civics and their understanding of those two subjects. And Thomas Jefferson, I know, believed greatly in in an education for the citizenry so that they could be productive citizens and be engaged to protect the democracy. I'm really concerned at the news of these low test scores for our young people today and their, and the fact that they don't understand and know U.S. history and civics. You know, as the state attorney general, and you see all kinds of crimes and, and things that are going on and the drug problems with fentanyl and all that kind of stuff, what are your thoughts on that? Because I'm really concerned that if our young people don't understand history, they don't know civics, that they come out of school and they're not good citizens, the pathway for them is not good. Someone once told me a long time ago, when you tax something, you get less of it. When you subsidize, subsidize it, you get more of it. Um, and, and, and that doesn't necessarily mean monetarily. Uh, I feel like in our society today, we subsidize bad behavior. We reward bad behavior. I'll give you a case in point. Recently, the administration just had a policy that if you have good credit, they want to put out a rule that you're going to, be subsidi- you're going to take people with good credit scores because they have a history of paying their mortgages and managing their finances yeah, are going to be subsidizing that. those people who do not have a good history or do not have good credit. So we're subsidizing through our policies bad behavior, and therefore you're going to get more, more bad behavior. That's what led to the 2008 financial crisis. You subsidize bad behavior. That is just one example. So when, the, when we subsidize bad behavior, you – in, in society, not just uh, government policy, but in society, the TikTok platform that we have in America is not the same TikTok platform they have in China. In China, TikTok promotes science and reading and math and, and civics, their version of civics. TikTok over here, you know, it subsidizes people getting kicked in the crotch in videos and in cat videos and, yeah. and, and things that just have kids. It's a time suck. It's a time suck for kids, and and, it, and and I think China's onto something. If I can rot the brains of America's youth and I can promote the education of China's youth, the next generation, China's going to take us out because of what we're subsidizing here as opposed to what they're subsidizing there. And so I, I use the term subsidize very narrowly here, meaning that we promote use, sub, sub, substitute the word promote. We're promoting bad behavior. They're promoting what they view as good behavior. And we're going to get more of the same and worse if we keep going down this road. So that's why I think um, we're getting less lower scores in civics and lower uh, scores across the board, actually, because we're promoting or subsidizing through policies and through societal expectations worse behavior than we did a generation ago. And unless we do something different, we're going to get more of the same. The good news headline is in South Carolina, charter schools, our students are doing well in U.S. history and civics. But I'm, I'm concerned about all kids in America, and I'm concerned about what this means. You and I have kids. 
I'm concerned about what the world's going to look like when they're our age. We'll be long gone. And so I want to ensure that our society and our democracy and our country that we love, that we're able to uphold all those great founding principles. And it's going to take a generation of young people to be able to stand up and say, no, this is what I believe. I'm going to stay true and firm to what my parents and my grandparents fought for. But if we're not getting it in school, I think we're going to see a lot of really bad second and third order effects down the road. So one last question, you're in the dentist building, you're getting on the elevator and somebody hops on and says, General Wilson, I understood you were on a uh, podcast, a kid's first podcast talking about school choice. Why school choice, General Wilson? Because I think anytime you can create more avenues to success, the better. The more freedom to choose a different direction. When you force people to go only one direction, you're going to get less success from that individual or from all of the individuals in the aggregate. To me, school choice is a way to promote success across the spectrum of kids that exist out there. The socioeconomic spectrum, the race spectrum, the you know geographic spectrum. I believe that every child and, and, and more, as just as important, every parent should have the ability to choose, to choose what is best for their child and not be force-fed only one way. Because sometimes the one way that is being force-fed on families who don't have alternatives or options, that way is not the best for their child, and you're going to get more of the same, a failed experiment. Amen to that. Attorney General Allen Wilson, Thank you so much for being on the Kids First Podcast. I really enjoyed this. We'll need to do this again. I would love to. And thank you for what you do for the charter schools of South Carolina. Well, thank you so much, General. Friends, that's a wrap on this week's Kid First Podcast. Again, we're very appreciative of our Attorney General, Alan Wilson, his family service to our state and our country. And we appreciate him being with us to talk about school choice, educational freedom, and charter schools. That's a wrap for this show. We'll see you next time on the Kids First Podcast. Kids First Podcast.